Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 68, and today I'm joined by Mark Fisher, Ethan Wattrall, Bill Hart-Davidson, uh, all here at uh, Matrix at Michigan State. Mark has been on the Digital Dialogue a number of times. Uh, he is Director of Teaching and Learning with Technology in the Department of Philosophy at Penn State. Uh, and uh, Mark and I have been here at Michigan State uh, to map out the infrastructure of the journal for uh, the Public Philosophy Journal uh, and to establish a roadmap for the project. So that's why we're here. Ethan Rattral is uh, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Michigan State and Associate Director of Matrix. In addition, uh, Ethan is Director of the Cultural Heritage Informatics Initiative and the Cultural Heritage Informatics Field School here at Michigan State. Eason's research interests fall in the domain of cultural heritage informatics with particular, though hardly exclusive, focus on digital archaeology and serious games and meaningful play for cultural heritage learning, outreach, and engagement. Bill Hart Davidson is Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Writing and Director of the Rhetoric and Writing Graduate Program here at Michigan State. Bill is Senior Researcher at WIDE Research at Matrix, and WIDE stands for Writing in Digital Environments. And he's co-inventor of Eli Review, a web service for coordinating and evaluating peer review. Bill is currently president of the Association of uh, Teachers of Technical Writing. And in January, he'll become uh, an associate dean for graduate studies in the College of Arts and Letters here at Penn State. So I'm looking forward to welcoming him to the associate deandom. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be great. You're going to love it. So, uh, and I want to thank also Mike Green, who's the director of the Digital Lab here, who's doing the work behind the scenes. This is going to probably be the best produced digital dialogue we've got uh, going. So we've been here uh, for the last two days uh, talking about the structure of the Public Philosophy Journal, and uh, it's been amazing, really, to... Um, be with people who, first of all, get the idea <laughs> of performing public scholarship in a public way, um, but also who have, like Bill, you know, uh, a lot of expertise in how to do public, how to do peer review, and Ethan, who's just an expert on all uh, many things, digital humanities, and uh, Mark and I were just talking at breakfast today about, you know, it's great to talk to people who really know the landscape and sort of think about what, what has been done, what's been done well. Um, so maybe the way to talk uh, about this, I mean, we've really kind of mapped out the various elements of the Public Philosophy Journal, which... Um, uh, we've kind of broken down into different pieces over the course of the last few days. Let me just mention some of those. Um, many of the listeners to the podcast will, will, will remember that the Public Philosophy Journal is an, designed to be an open peer review uh, journal of public philosophy that attempts to perform public philosophy as a mode of, of publication, and we envision listening to the web every day uh, for articles at the intersection of philosophy and the public issues of public concern. Uh, and then inviting people into an open peer review process. Uh, but we've been talking about the, the profile, how the profile for the site is going to work, what, did, what your personal profile is going to look like, um, what the publication itself is going to look like, what the review process uh, will, will, will be, um, how we're going to curate, and how we're going to have some kind of space for collaborative writing. So maybe since, you know, Bill, you're here and, and are, have this expertise in review and the sort of Eli review process, maybe we could talk a little bit about this review process. Yeah, I think over the last couple of uh, days we've talked a little bit about one role in particular that I think is interesting because it's it's not always visible unless you're playing the role, and um, that's the role of the review coordinator. Yeah. Um, 
And this is a role that in a classroom setting the teacher often plays. They, they set up what the conditions of the review are, what the deadlines are, who's going to review what. Um, and of co- the most important task is the criteria for the review. Yeah. Um, when you move that out into a, pro- a professional arena, and this is true for print journals or traditional co- academic conferences or, or venues like that, um, it's often the, the program uh, director or program committee that plays that coordinative role, um, but you still have uh, the same essential actions that people are are, are doing, and um, so that's what we really tried to um, think about when we created Eli Review. Is is there a way to imagine that review coordination role so that people can set up reviews easily and consistently, and then how do you hand off that ability? Um, in a in a situation like we're thinking about with PPJ, so that it isn't just one expert that can be a review coordinator, but you might be able to open up that coordination role to other people. I think the the idea of a coordinator is really one that um, we and Mark and I you you and I hadn't thought that much about in in detail, and I think that's been one of the things that's really. Um, uh, been uh, uh, an important shift for me just in the last few days, and thinking about how logistically this review process is going to work. It's not. It's not going to be. Uh, I mean, it's going to be managed, and and that's a real important element. Right. <clears throat> yeah, we had thought about, of course, the significance of the reviews themselves, but uh, hadn't put a, a, a great deal of thought into uh, precisely how it is that we can that we can use the role of the review coordinator um, as a role that 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 helps us to. Uh, uh, to set the expectations and to and to ensure that the that the process is going to be the kind of kind of review process that we're looking uh, looking to to feature on the on the site. Yeah, one of the things that f- features in in that is the the profile, the user profile. We you know yesterday, Ethan, we were talking a lot about that. What what that looks like, how that gets how that gets built. I think there's. Uh, I mean, it's it's. I mean, a lot of sort of software and services have have sort of profiles themselves. But one of the one of the interesting things about you know what we're kind of envisioning for the the, the profile for the for the journal itself is it will also, in addition to you know, kind of you know basic information about you know you know where you are and stuff like that, um, and, you know, in your academic credentials or or you know uh, you know non academic uh, activities, um, it will also uh, represent your and sort of in in a sort of very interesting graphical way, you know, represent your activity within the system itself, um, and you know you can you can certainly think about that as as uh, you know badges or a score, but but it, it, it you know things like <clears throat> how uh, how many times have you been reviewed? How many times have you reviewed? How many times have you commented? How many times you've been you've been commented on? Mm-hmm. So so representing your activity and your commitment to the actual system and the stuff that happens within the within the system itself is a is a really kind of interesting exciting way of uh, of, of, of you know visualizing and quantifying that kind of you know behavior within the within the journal itself. Yeah, we were talking uh, even last night at dinner uh, about thinking of that in terms of a network of practice so that you know you're creating a network of relationships within your profile in the journal that um, relates to the things you do, yeah. not to the people you know or the people you've agreed to follow, right, right some things like that. And, and Bill, you were bringing up uh, earlier today this idea of having in that network not just people but things, objects like articles. 
Right, yeah. So the the nature of that is that your relationship with other people isn't some kind of um, announced social relationship, but it's a relationship that comes about as a result of interacting with another person, usually um, with a document at the center of those interactions. So you can, um, as a writer, you can receive comments and receive feedback, and as a reviewer, you can give feedback, and then all the people who have given you feedback and all the people you've given feedback to automatically become uh, part of your network of practice. I think this is actually a really interesting shift, you know, from the friends or friending or followers or following model to, you know, your network is built up by what you do right. within it. Um, is that's a that's a really interesting shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean it would it would be great to not only be to be able to do that within the ecosystem of the journal, but um, to extend that out beyond the journal to the open web and to articles that are published out there so that you can actually um, begin to see a, ma- a networked map of your, uh, you know, your activities, including when you reference an article in your article, mm-hmm. that connection gets made so that as you right. drill down to articles and things, you're actually seeing yeah. the conversation. And the, I mean, the interesting thing about this, it's not only a representation of your activity, but it's a discovery tool, right? You know, right. someone views... Yeah. Your, uh, you know, uh, you know, model or your your graph of activity, you know, you can they can then see who you are connected to, and and provide really sort of interesting, fruitful areas of exploration, and also for for you as well. I mean, this may expose connections and you know intellectual and individual connections right. that you might not necessarily have known. Uh, existed previously, right? I'm, I'm I'm really excited about the way that we can represent some of these things graphically instead of just continuing to try and describe them discursively, because I think um, that that will suggest certain things about people's uh, people's interaction with others, about people's centrality within certain networks, about the kind of influence that people have um, that can be a lot harder to get at um, uh, just strictly discursively. So, I agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it, the other thing is it opens up all kinds of interesting ways to investigate what have been uh, up to this point kind of theoretical um, conjectures about what makes somebody more um, intellectually open or mm-hmm. or even high quality in terms of their thinking. Like, for example, w- would someone with more connections and more diverse connections um, exhibit a quality of thought in their own writing that is better than someone with fewer? Um, we tend to think that, right? right but now right. We, we might actually see some indicators of that as a function of how well-reviewed their work is and how widely they uh, enact um, other review networks. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges that we are facing is how to make the journal resonate with the traditional uh, values and structures of the academy, uh, particularly with regard to tenure and other things. So we want, on the one hand, to do that. On the other hand, to be open enough to blur the boundaries between the academy and the public enough so that people who are not um, in the academy are credentialed in certain kinds of ways and can become part of the intellectual community of of the journal and and of um, the the scholarly practice we're trying to embody with the journal. I think that's I mean that's phenomenally important is you know not only blurring those lines but you know uh, uh, performing respect 
right? I mean, you're, you're, you're saying that, you know, these individuals who are scholars, certainly, but they're not academics in the same kind of way that, w- that we're academics, that their, uh, their writing and their practice is as valued as, uh, you know, sort of traditional faculty academic practice because you're just jamming them all into the same space and, you know, level playing field in terms of how their writing and their work is assessed. And maybe they're not scholars at all. I mean, maybe they, I mean, they're citizen scholars in the sense that they're engaged in a reflection on their practices, and, and uh, but they may be activists, they may be, you know, other people who um, are interested simply in um, thinking through the theoretical underpinnings of what they're trying to do uh, practically in the world. And this also, I mean, there's interesting opportunities here for, you know, making the, the, the disciplinary walls of philosophy a little more permeable in the sense that there are, there are lots of uh, scholars that, you know, non-philosophers, you know, sociologists, right. you know, bioethicists, you know, whatever, who have, you know, have a great deal to bring to this conversation specifically. And, you know, you are the way in which this is designed in which which is conceived, it's going to include them as well and sort of broadening that conversation beyond sort of traditional players. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the trick is going to be to embed in the design of the environment, the ecosystem, uh, ways of habituating uh, interpretive generosity, you know, responses that are um, enriching of the discussion and the scholarship rather than those that are impoverishing. Right, right. And I think it's, uh, it, it's going to be an example of a, of a kind of design process that is itself recognizes um, the kinds of, of value judgments that uh, that we're making along the way that uh, that we don't have a value neutral design process or a value neutral uh, design of a forum, but that we are in fact putting forth uh, something that that uh, corresponds to a certain idea uh, that we have concerning deliberation, um, and that can be seen as uh, you know potentially one of, of of many ways of enacting or of trying to facilitate the deliberative process. Um, that itself has resonance both at the level of the, the scholar practitioner or the, uh, as, as you say, Chris, the, 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 the person who is not necessarily a scholar in the traditional sense, um, but can also provide uh, material for reflection amongst those who, who are already involved in the, uh, in the, uh, in the scholarly discussion of, of public deliberation and of uh, its role in, uh, in, in democracy or in um, other areas of, of interaction. I, th- I think it's also, you know, important to to point out as we're as we're sort of talking sort of the, about the bits and bobs of the system and how it's going to work that this is absolutely transparent. That you know that that the these these sort of ideologies of generosity are going to be absolutely stated, cards on the table, absolutely everything that there is. So so everyone knows how we work, how it works, you know, why we're doing it uh, as opposed to sort of and and also, you know, the process itself is going to be completely, you know, exposed to anyone who so you know what you're getting into, you know what's happening um and and you know and as such it I mean it would would engender a, a sort of a much hopefully, you know, a much more sort of giving and and sort of friendly atmosphere. And I th- I mean one of the things I've really appreciated Ethan about your, you know, the things you've been saying the last couple of days and you know over the course of our discussions even since the DH 2013 is, you know, your advocacy for that uh, transparency, for that publicness. I mean, I think that um, is critical. And um, we want to 
perform the kind of scholarship uh, and the kind of uh, process that we, in terms of creating the journal, that we want to have the journal, that have animate the journal. So there's an ethos we're trying to create. Now, we haven't been um, able yet, and we're going to build the, the you know, sort of preliminary site as a sort of blob platform to encourage comments and all that sort of thing so that we are able to begin to have some deliberative decision-making in terms of how um, the the journal itself functions. Obviously, we have a vision for this, and that vision is going to inform what we do. But um, but we need to begin to start hearing from the community and cu- cultivating that community. I mean, one of the one of the the things that I I, I often t- you know tell people when we're talking about sort of open scholarly openness is there are a lot of reasons to be closed, and you know there are reasons, disciplinary reasons, there are individual reasons. I mean, there are reasons, but the default state should be open. It should not be closed. You should start from a state of openness, and then kind of make those make those assessments but there is this worry and I don't want to but um, there is this worry that we heard a little bit yesterday but well what what do we do and maybe bill can help us with this too because it's part of the review process what do we do with a junior scholar who's reviewing the work of a senior scholar um, and we want the person to be able to really say their view of what what's going on in the article mm-hmm. uh, and yet we know the academy has power dynamics and uh, disciplines have power dynamics and those are operating yeah, I think a fascinating dynamic here is around the idea of rigor and around the idea of value of um, of vetting of vetting procedure is uh, that we're completely doing a 180 on the notion of blind review. Mm-hmm. Um, so blind review does something that um, uh, a couple of things. One is that it affords anonymity. For, so it it tends to try to be a way to counter those power relationships that we talk about. It also has some unfortunate effects, though, right? Um, it black boxes the decision-making process. So wh- the question, it seems to me, is how can we open up the decision-making process without necessarily um, revealing, uh, eroding the anonymity that might actually lend integrity to um, the application of criteria to a review target? And the way we, we've done that with Eli is the review coordinator based on the the participants in the review can elect to turn on um, anonymity or turn it off mm-hmm. um, and that that's usually a function of two things one is is um, where a piece is in the in the process towards the end if you're if you're getting more towards a summative decision um, that's it, it's a higher stakes issue of does it pass or does it not pass? Earlier on, though, it actually what we see in, in classroom spaces is turning on um, identities actually enables dialogue to proceed if the goal is to develop the piece. Yeah. And the person comes in to the review process understanding that this feedback is formative. Um, then anonymity starts to matter less. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot about that and recently uh, wrote a short blog post about my own experience in a very traditional uh, journal review uh, model where I was the reviewer and and um, the, uh, you know, my my ability to formulate. So I began to imagine, well, what if this was uh, uh, not anonymous? What if this was public? 
and I tried to write the review as as if it were, and I was um, a little bit vexed by the tone and 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 the the process by which this article kind of unfolded. It was. Um, uh, let's say it lacked humility of any kind. <laughs> um, and so my in- initial reaction was to kind of be, you know, a- a react out of anger and kind of be a little bit snarky in my kind of, in my responses. And then thinking, well, let me imagine this being out in the public. And that forced me to articulate my um, issues with the article much more succinctly and, and less in a less reactionary way, just by performing that kind of um, intellectual um, uh, experiment with, with it. And I, I mean, I'm hoping that, that the, the publicness of it will do that. It will force us to be more articulate about exactly what we have as an, as an issue with whatever the article is. Yeah, and I, another way we, we can think about that. Um, Purely in the space of the review process is um, we think about a pattern that leads to helpful reviews. So we, in in Eli, what we have is a helpfulness score, and what we're able to now see is go back and reconcile that with what people actually do in their review comments, and what we have uh, been able to describe, and what we now actually teach um, students is a fairly simple heuristic pattern for getting a a a helpful score on, mm-hmm. on a review in terms of a, down to a single comment. And that is, uh, the pattern is describe, evaluate, suggest. Um, and what this really does is it makes people adopt three different stances. So the first one, evalu- and it's important in the sequence too, the first stance is as the reader um, or as the imagined audience. And the, the more they can do that um, and reflect back what, the writer is trying to do as a as an initial step, um, the the more helpful that that gets uh, read by the by the writer. Yeah. Um, the second step is the more traditional one. It's the one that we tend to default to. It's the one that you said. Right. Like I, I wanted to just start snarkily. Right. The evaluative stance is the critic critic stance, right. right? And it has some value. It's where the criteria meet the meet the object that's under review. Um, and then the third stance is the most uh, radical, and it's the most disconcerting for the critic, is as the writer themselves. So when you suggest, right. you put on, you you put on the the shoes of the writer and right. walk around in them and right. say, okay, you can critique, but you now have to make a suggestion of what yeah. you would do about it. So if when you move through that sequence, even in a single comment, describe, evaluate, suggest, describe, evaluate, right. suggest, um, you tend to produce helpful reviews. Yeah, you know, I think um, it's not only at that at that third stage where, in a sense, you're asked to put on the shoes of the writer because uh, you, if your description is going to be one um, that uh, is is actually takes note of um, the way in which the the author uh, him or herself um, has articulated the audience, has articulated the intentions, has articulated uh, right. the the standards that that he or she um, are assuming uh, for the discourse. Um, then by the time you get to the evaluative stage, right, you've already signaled that you're capable of grasping uh, what those standards are instead of just bringing the standards that you yourself as, as critic may have. Um, and so that already uh, um, at the, the – the, and, and this is something that, that Chris and I were talking about on our way here was uh, ways in which we can um, try and uh, get beyond the uh, – the ways in which we've seen so many reviews or so many reactions uh, take place, which is just um, 
you know, this this doesn't uh, uh, this doesn't correspond to uh, the judgment that I would make on the basis of my own standards, right. and that's the judgment that I'm going to that I'm going to level instead yeah. of yeah. instead of what is it that the author is generally trying to do? What would what would uh, a, a critical uh, collab or someone who is who is interested in critically engaging uh, what 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 viewpoint would they take? And that's that's the viewpoint that we're really looking for people to adopt in this kind of review process. Yeah, and going back to something Ethan said, it accords – that first step when you take it seriously of describing, um, it accords a measure of respect to the writer by saying, I'm imagining that you thought hard about this, that you imagined a reader out there and that you, you agonized about how best to do this. I'm going to reflect that back so that you can have a check on that. Right, as, I mean, a, as an initial exactly. The, the the vocabulary I've used to think about this is hermeneutic imagination. So, cl- how do we cultivate hermeneutic imagination in our responses to one another? Uh, and this is exactly a way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, from 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 describe to evaluate to su- suggest, you're you're cultivating different aspects of the hermeneutical imagination. Um, and I'm wondering, Ethan, about how we how we can. Um, bring that into the to the profile and bring that into we've been talking a little bit about the kind of ppj score that you get uh for various things the credentialing that you get various kinds of um things would go into that things like your if you're in in the academy your position your what articles you've published in the area um uh, how long you've maybe been in that position those kind of traditional things but then of course um certain activities on the journal uh, that you've done, uh, how many reviews you've made, what kind of comments you made, how helpful your comments were. Um, so, you know, been thinking a little bit about how we craft that, you know, and and weigh that score. Yeah, I think that's actually, I mean, it, it's probably going to be the most sort of challenging. I mean, how do you quantify generosity, right? right? I mean, it, it, it's, you know, but, but you know, the generosity and the helpfulness, you know, these, these sort of emotional sort of uh, qualitative uh, kinds of things, how do you quantify those? You know, if you want to make that, um, uh, uh, you know, a measure of someone's uh, contributions to the, to the journal, to the journal itself. And that's the, that's the thing that I'm, I'm uh, sort of, I think is going to be sort of the most, the most exciting because that, 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 you know, goes, you know, well be, you know, we've, we've situated the need for that within the, the journal itself, but those are, that's work that goes well, well beyond the journal and could have incredible value, you know, in lots of other systems. How do you quantify those very qualitative sort of emotional things? What we were talking about last night was a collegiality score. Yeah. Yeah, how do you, wouldn't that be nice? It's yeah. sort of like uh, yeah. Cory Doctorow's Woofy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, what, what we're envisioning in, in a way, too, is this uh, what you may get, part of what you get perhaps as an academic in, and well, anybody, but as an academic in particular in, in by participating in the journal is um, a kind of letter we might send out with some analytics based on your profile and, yeah. and your scores and what, what went into those scores, what, what kind of collegiality score, how many reviews have you done, those kinds of things, how, how Helpful were those reviews rated by the other users, but then also for an individual article, right? We can have an article that has analytics behind it to show not only okay, I, pu- I got a publication in the Public Philosophy Journal, but now this this comes with a sheet that shows you well, it's been linked this many times, and it had this many comments, and it has been cited in in this many places, and mm-hmm. and, and, and that can really add value to the tenure process too. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 uh, would would help people make the argument of, for impact. 
you know, because, you know, as we know in the academy, impact is measured in very, very sort of small kinds of ways. And if we, you know, if we expand how we measure impact and how we sort of define impact can be very, very helpful to junior and senior scholars. I mean, anyone for that matter. Well, and I think the the nice thing about that is that it also begins to um, figure out a way or a model to give people credit for the scholarly engagement they're doing on the web, on the open web right. Right. right so they're and including things like you know tweets and facebook posts and blog posts that are you know that are in and of themselves maybe not you know they certainly don't rise to the level of an article or something like that but they are part of your your engagement with the scholarly community. Yeah, and that, I mean that is especially important within the context of this journal, which blurs the line between academic and public. Um, and and the other thing that that that's important about that is there's I mean a lot of us are producing significant substantive um, you know scholarly narratives outside of the the boundaries of traditional journals um, and you know this is a way to to sort of uh, to, to track those and to and to measure them and to sort of express them in ways that are understood by more traditional colleagues or traditional sort of reward structures within the academy yeah even just to give I like to remind my fellow humanists that uh, when we talk about accounting, yeah. <laughs> that it's giving an account of is the is the bottom line. Like tell a story yeah. about, and um, we have we often literally have no way to account for so much of that work now. And this would this would do that in a way that might also resolve to spreadsheets and you know numbers and things like that. But it, it begins with a a convincing evidence backed story that. Oh, yeah, it turns out what Ethan is doing is valuable. Right. Well, and, I mean, one of the things we talked about with Paul Thompson yesterday, too, was that um, the question of the topic of reviewing and the meaning of expertise is itself a philosophical question that could be a theme of articles in the journal. We were talking about that with regard to science, uh, the philosophy of science in particular. Oh, yeah. But, you know, epistemological questions, of course, uh, even thinking about uh, deliberative politics, that sort of thing is a perfect kind of topic for the public philosophy journal. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there are some interesting dynamics there that Ethan was talking that it strikes me that we also have the opportunity to... Uh, to create new kinds of categories of, of metrics which uh, go along with the same um, impulse that the publicness of PPJ already uh, tries to do. And that is, so if you think about a traditional metric like um, H-index, which is a, which actually is a network metric that, that um, gives you, uh, as a scholar, a value based on the, the over and under of how often you're cited versus how often you cite other people. Um, that, that really is a very, it re- relies on a very sort of insular um, dynamic within the traditional publishing framework. And so it literally can't change things. It can only reinforce them. Um, and it can't value things like engagement with, with, a, with a public audience. Um, so I, I think the idea of moving outside that and finding equally credible ways to quantify something like engagement. One thing I've been thinking about in graduate education is measuring um, a graduate student's time to engagement. So we talk a lot about time to degree um, as how fast after you enter graduate school do you get done. Um, I think we need, but that, you know, is we can't wait around for that to see if we're doing a good job by that one student. So what would be a, what would be a metric that we could get as a formative data point 
earlier on in their process. And one one idea I was thinking about is time to engagement. How fast after you enter a program do you make a meaningful contribution to a professional venue? Uh, do you join the scholarly conversation that you are there to join? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, too, in my, in my capacity as uh, Associate Dean for uh, Undergraduate and Graduate Education at Penn State is um, how can we provide graduate students with the resources they need to create a, an online presence, an online identity that is related to their scholarly work that can actually front load and be the platform for future engagement very early on right. that can then grow and support a much more robust public engagement uh, profile uh, as they grow into their profession. Um, part of what we want to try and do at Penn State is to allow them to create a domain of their own and support them in that process, let them put on, you know, whether they want to do a WordPress site or an Omega site or whatever, uh, and then let them craft that early on. Um, talk to them about the value of using Twitter early and, and how they can do it in an academic setting um, in, at a time when, you know, they're getting some blowback from faculty saying, you know, you don't want to be out there. You want to, you know, be very guarded and be very strategic about how you come out into the public. I mean, I think that's you want to be careful, but you need, you need to be out there and you need to be building that up early on. So I think that this a journal fits in well with that model too because you know we're going to be rewarding people who are posting blogs and other things and thinking out loud in public about their scholarly work we're going to be hopefully finding some of those we're going to be pulling them out of the out of the ethernet of you know uh, and and figuring out you know and inviting them to become part of this collaborative writing process i, I think the the thing that's sort of the subtext there that needs to be sort of teased out is that that's a seismic shift you know, within graduate education. I mean, certainly there are disciplines that are sort of centrally focused on engagement. I mean, there are, there are lots. But generally speaking, you know, traditional scholarly disciplines are not. You know, and, and saying early on to graduate students from the very beginning, and undergraduates for that matter, that engagement is central. It's not something that some people do or you pick up later. It is part of your scholarly identity from the word go. And rewarding that in the same way and recognizing that in the same way that we do sort of other more traditional forms of scholarly, you know, production is is a seismic shift. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and it doesn't need to replace. I mean, it's additive in the yeah. sense that obviously people need to go to conferences. They need to begin to crea- craft that article that actually gets placed in journals and, and other sorts of things. And we need more places that um, are... are um, uh, or have that have a real rigorous you know review process that where it counts for something substantive, but built into the uh, into the proposal for the public philosophy journal is this graduate mentoring project and so i 'm hoping as we as we build this out and bill working with you too and the graduate students in philosophy to, cre- to create a mentoring program within among the graduate students so that they are learning what it means to curate, learning how to be a coordinator of review. Uh, and learning how to facilitate online discussion and to do public scholarship. I th- yeah, I think those are great, great opportunities for grad students. Yeah, you know, and I think it um, provides the opportunity r- recognizing, as you said, that uh, that one needs to be careful about uh, when and how one puts oneself out there, but recognizing that there are so many different ways to do that now. Um, and that uh, one of the things that uh, that this 
that that this allows is uh, to put yourself out there in baby steps or to put yourself out there in in, in certain ways that are uh, uh, that that correspond to where you are at your stage of, at the stage of development uh, within your career, um, and then also to um, discourage the. Uh, standing before the decision of um, should I do this because it'll put a line on my CV, right? Or should I do this because this is what I'm really interested in doing? And yeah, the ability, the ability to track those things right. um, that don't that the, don't fit quite so nicely as 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 lines on your CV yeah. um, allows you to provide that account that you're talking about to provide a fuller account of of how it is that you are engaged. Um, so that we um, so that we do a better job of paying attention to the various ways that we are engaged, um, even when we're not publishing in top flight journals, or even when we're not uh, uh, doing doing things that are al- already recognized uh, in terms of in terms of uh, uh, those those the, the the standards that we currently orient ourselves towards. I mean, the, the graduate students or faculty, you know, senior or junior, who make decisions to do things because it's worth doing. You know, and because it's the right thing uh, for whatever reason, being able to recognize that kind of behavior. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my sense is um, there's a really intriguing economics behind all of this, and 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 a, and a desire to expose the the incentive structures that have been there in the past, and maybe to subtly suggest that. We've gotten some of those things wrong, and one one of the, one of the things that always intrigues me is the way. Um, and we of all people should should know better than to do this, but we we often treat um, these non finite social goods that we all work towards, like a better scholarly reputation, as finite resources. Hmm. Um, we don't have to do that, right? We don't have to play academia as a zero sum affair. Right. Um, it's one way to play, and, and people and publication can publication also, right? Especially in a digital world where, right. you know, we, we can we don't have we're not we're not um, we're not we don't need to really worry about a, you know distribution model for you know the number of journals we can send out and that sort of thing. Yeah, and and, and in some cases, and graduate cohorts are an excellent example of this. Uh, the exact opposite economic value is in play. In other words, I don't. I'm not diminished when your reputation grows. I'm actually enhanced because I went to school with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it pays to to build the scholarly reputation within a small cohort especially because then you're part of that group, right? Well, then and that bring, it brings us to another aspect of this journal, which is the collaborative writing. Because we don't, you know, what, right now when we look at tenure in the humanities, we look at, you know, you know, Single author monograph has kind of the gold standard for a tenure. And um, what we're talking about doing in the journal is providing a collaborative space uh, in which people can really write together in a, in a robust way and learn those habits of, of scholarly collaboration, as well as uh, opening the possibility for, let's say, somebody who's a reviewer to have such an impact on the, on, on the article that, that maybe they rise to the level of co-author. And uh, how that gets negotiated in the context of this is going to be something that's interesting. But I think we want to allow that to happen. You know, and, and in addition to some of the more traditional ways we want to have things happen, which would be to have an article published immediately with a response paper. So let's say a review is so substantive that the person actually wants to write a, a response kind of paper to it. Mm. That should be able to go up, up online together, you know. 
I mean, I really like the idea of you know the the the, the works are are appear on the website, you know, for all to all to see, um, and then they are reviewed before they are officially published. Um, I really like the idea of you know um, a, someone who's commenting and having a dialogue and a discussion with the author, you know, uh, could could potentially could potentially um, sort of enter into this relationship with the author that makes them a co-author. So, you know, uh, you know, and that, and that's, that's unheard of, you know, within this, within this system. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, of kind of vertical mobility, um, if you can think about it in, in that way, in the whole system. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, it's also going to be, I mean, the, the review coordinator and those discussions that have to be facilitated in that context are discussions that we are not used to having, I think, in the humanities. So, so uh, at what point is, and, and how much authority does the author have in deciding, well, actually, yeah, now you can be a co-author on this thing that, you know, I, I originally wrote, or does that fall into that? Now you can, no, be a response paper. Or does, does it actually rise to the level of its own paper that needs to go through the review process out, uh, on the other end of it? So we're going to have to, there are going to be a lot of different options that one could have. Yep. Depending on the situation, and we had, we had talked a little bit about you know sort of cycling and that into the credentialing reward system of the of the system itself. You know where you are if you uh, write a collaboratively edited authored paper. You know maybe you'll get a few extra points for that because it's something that we want to encourage. Again, right. this is not a value neutral system. We're encouraging certain kinds of behavior that we see to be beneficial to the academy as a whole. Well, yeah, we were talking about this a little bit before, too, we, before we started. Um, one of the effects that this has is that we shift the focus of um, what gets noticed um, out there in the world to the activity of doing philosophy as opposed to the resulting paper. Um, this is something that in writing studies uh, we live with uh, and have accepted as a matter of being in, in that little circle is that we're looking at writing as activity in the world, as the thing people do, as the verb. Right. And that's deeply unsettling, though, to people who do it and, and whose value lies in the objects that result. Um, well, and, and we want to publish these, these articles with the history of – uh, their their provenance with them, right? So that you're you're able to link back all the way to the seed blog post or whatever, or the op-ed piece that that was the original sort of idea, and then be able to link through to see how these reviews have actually shifted the content of the paper, so that ultimately by the time something is published. It's published along with that whole history, and we've even been. We were talking yesterday about having uh, the possibility of uh, revisions after publication. So, uh, Article 1.0, 2.0, that kind of thing, depending on how it uh, how it develops. I mean, I really love the idea of presenting the entire evolutionary history of a work from its its very beginnings. You know, because it's it's not only a corpus in and of itself, which is very intellectually understanding, but it represents. You know how ideas change and how people influence and, and you know influenced in the influencer, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I and, can see how you like that as an anthropologist, yeah. and, <laughs> and I, I I love it too as a writing person because what it it does keep the uh, the effect. Um, the the text is the is the sort of fossilized record, um, right. but what you're really seeing are people interacting, and yeah. that's the that's the thing they're doing. They're, but they're the reasoning thing. together. They're yeah. they're deliberating together. Um, the result is a text, but that text isn't fixed. Um, it's it 
yeah. evolves over time. But that involves a real shift in our habits and our and, – and it requires us to be public earlier yeah. uh, and to be open for those conversations that are hard to hear, to have those conversations be a public so that when you're told that's not exactly right or even when maybe you've gotten something wrong that's kind of you know stupidly wrong, I mean that's all going to be out there. We're going to have to navigate that. We're going to have to – uh, work on the culture of and the and the scholarly habits uh, of the community. Yeah, because the people who have been most rewarded by the other way of playing the game are going to be deeply resistant to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually heard a story this morning about on uh, NPR about the one of the um, uh, Nobel prizes that was awarded this year um, in economics, and they they awarded it to people whose uh, views were vastly different from one another, and they interviewed both and. One guy was still bitter about it, and the other guy was like, yeah, I was a little shocked, but I can see the point of view of the committee. They were they didn't award it for any one of our work. They awarded it for the, the pr- productive tension mm-hmm. out of which this idea that we now have has emerged, and I was one side of that. I needed an antagonist, and then we had this third person who sort of played a synthesis role. And there's an instance of valuing the the uh, the overall – advancement in thought that did not result from any one person's work. And that, that's a pretty radical concept. And it's hard for one of those people to accept because he won, you know, he, he needed to win. Right. It's also incredibly ephemeral, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, an, yeah. you know, an article and is settled. Yeah. Right? It still right. feels like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, go ahead. Mark. No, I was just going to say that, uh, uh, as we were talking about yesterday, it's, it's interesting how a relatively recent invention, um, comes to, comes to have that kind of grip uh, where the idea of the of the, uh, the the sole author of the individual piece and whether it be the monograph or the or the journal article uh, is, is you know has risen to prominence within the last 50 years or so um, yet in such a way that uh, that it's that it's it's entrenched so much that uh, it seems really radical to try and upset that um, and so uh, I thought the, the the point that that Dean made yesterday about uh, you know making sure that we uh, that we also take a bit of a historical perspective on our own practices and recognize that uh, that they uh, uh, that they don't have the kind of fixity uh, that they can sometimes appear to have when we look around at the contemporary landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that uh, has been tremendously valuable about working on this project has been the collaboration that's emerged between uh, us at Penn State and and you here at Michigan State. Uh, This visit has been uh, really transformative for my own thinking about how the journal is going to work. It's a real privilege to have experts in digital humanities in writing and reviewing uh, to, to have a dialogue with. And uh, we're hoping that this journal from the ground up really performs the kind of collaboration that we're trying to have it embody uh, when it uh, actually does come, uh, uh, come to fruition. So uh, I really thank you all for being on the Digital Dialogue. Thank you. Thanks. This has been the Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of The Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org where you're invited to 
listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been the Digital Dialogue.